Welcome to Inspire Church's podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or to donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. Good morning, church. Happy Sunday. You happy to be here? I know I am. I'm blessed. Um, Let's go ahead and get our Bibles and open up to Mark chapter 3. I have a tall task this morning. Um, There's two things that make this task tall. Number one is um, I'm not so good with economy of words, so I tend to use all kinds of words. So I'm going to attempt to go through the entire chapter of Mark and do it in one sitting and make sure that you're out by lunch. Amen? Good. I'm glad most of you didn't say amen. Praise God. You guys want to be here longer. Uh, But so... So pray for me. I want to make sure that we get through this today. Um, but um, the book of Mark has really just been blessing me, and we're only three chapters in. Um, it's just been painting such an incredible picture of Jesus Christ. Um, and I just kind of want, by way of re- recap, if you remember, in week one, Mark introduced us to a king with an unexpected euangelion. An unexpected gospel. He introduced us to a king with unexpected good news. News that tells you and I that even though we are unable to secure for ourselves victory over sin and death, Jesus Christ on our behalf has secured that victory for us through his life and death on the cross. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In week two, Mark demonstrated that victory and what it looked like in real time. We discovered that not only did this unexpected king bring unexpected good news, but he had unexpected exousia, unexpected authority over demons, disease, death, and sin. And finally, in week three, last week, Pastor Roger brilliantly illustrated this king's most offensive move yet. Not only did Jesus bombard the kingdom of hell with his supernatural authority, but he also offended all man-made religion. To the point where they began to plot his death. And I love this quote from Pastor Roger's message. Jesus didn't come to reform the religion they knew. He came to get rid of it and replace it with himself. And so this morning, let's pray and let's get into the text. Heavenly Father, have your way. Let your will be done. I pray that your word would be spoken accurately. And I pray that your spirit would do what he needs to do inside of each and every heart and mind in this room. I have no power, but your word does. I have no authority, but your spirit does. And so we rest and we lean on your word and your authority this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. C.S. Lewis wrote, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, a devil from hell, or he's Lord. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let none of us come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us, and he never intended to. Today, I want to finish chapter 3 and then set us up for the parable of the sower in chapter 4. So consider today's message a kind of two-parter with next Sunday, kind of a series within a series. Now, Here in chapter 3, Mark will introduce us to five different groups of people who will all paint for us a fuller and more glorious picture 
of who Jesus truly is. And today, we'll primarily focus on how they responded to the person and work of Jesus. Next week, our primary focus will be on how you are responding to that same person and work of Jesus Christ. So as we open to Mark chapter 3, and we're going to be reading 1 through 35, so just keep your Bible there. Here's what I want you to pay attention to. I want you to pay attention to the responses of these five people groups. Number one, the Pharisees. Number two, the crowds. Number three, Jesus' followers. Number four, the scribes. And finally, number five, Jesus' own relatives. So if you have your Bibles, and we'll have it up here for you, the screen as well. Let's jump into Mark chapter 3, verse 1 through 35. It reads like this. Again, he, that's Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with, him, with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against them. How to destroy him. I'm going to stop right there. Last Sunday, Roger preached a wonderful message on this story. If you missed it, I want to encourage you to go back to the podcast. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. But by way of review and for the sake of today's message, I want you to notice the Pharisees. Mark tells us that they were what? Waiting to accuse him. I wonder if this was a trap. Did they purposefully place this man with a deformed hand on the Sabbath day in front of Jesus at the synagogue to see if Jesus would heal him? I wonder if they were trapping him. Now, how low can you go? These men were supposed to represent God to the people, yet they were more concerned about their religious codes than this man's withered hand. Now listen to what Paul Tripp, Pastor Paul Tripp concludes. On the Sabbath, the humanness of people and the glory of God come together in rest and worship. There could be no better way to honor the Sabbath than what Jesus is doing. Yet the legalism of the Pharisees would deny the goodness of God and the restoration of this hurting man because it was out of their control. And again, Roger spoke so eloquently last week about this. I want you to notice the Pharisees' response. Their brand of religion did not give life, but instead destroyed it. So after Jesus heals the man, they're convinced that Jesus needs to be destroyed. He is either liar, lunatic, demonic, or Lord. They had to decide for themselves. Let's continue to read in verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd, this is our next people group, a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard that he, what he was doing, they came to him. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he, being Jesus, strictly ordered them not to make him known. Now let's stop there to talk about this second people group, the crowds. Now if you've been with me for some time now, I have to admit, when it comes to the crowds, I'm not very gracious. Typically, the crowds are not there for the gospel. 
They're not there to repent and believe in the gospel. They're there for their healing. I told you two weeks ago, the crowds are looking for more of a personal genie than a personal savior. Yet, even I can't deny that the compassion of Christ and the intensity of this moment deserves our attention. Can you grasp this for a moment? This is a picture of broken humanity running to the feet of Jesus. Even though their motivations might be misplaced, the compassion of our Savior is still determined. He's still determined to make whole what is broken and to restore what Satan has perverted. Desperately in need, humanity is pressing against Jesus to the point where he has to now instruct his disciples everywhere they go to have escape boats. Why? Not to escape the crowd, but the crowd is pressing so much against him that it is literally threatening his life. Scripture tells us they're concerned that Jesus might be crushed. Now let me take some time to put this scene into perspective. When I was a child, my family and I would sometimes make trips to Baja, California. Anybody enjoy some of the tacos in Ensenada, Tijuana? I know Andy's here. He used to go with his family. We love those tacos. Amen. Now, if you've been to places like these, you know that the poverty level of the people is pretty evident. I can remember heading into the city to shop only to be bombarded by the poor. Have you ever had that experience? Mothers selling trinkets. Remember the little cheekless being sold by the kids? The children following you for blocks at a time. Some even invading your private space. Some even willing to grab onto you. Anything to persuade you to buy. And of course, as spoiled Americans, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? Well, first of all, it's uncomfortable because we don't like anybody violating our personal space. In fact, some of you come to Inspire and you're like, hey, wait a minute, can we put a little bit more room between these rows? <laughs> it's uncomfortable because we have a bubble that we don't like. <laughs> I see people hugging people next to them. Praise God. <laughs> but we don't like people to violate our private space. But secondly... We don't like to be confronted with that type of poverty. We don't like to be confronted with that reality because it makes us feel uncomfortable. But there was one particular trip that I'll never forget. It's a moment of discomfort that is forever seared in my mind, and it's my mom's mind too. And she may know where I'm going with this. One night... While exploring the streets of TJ, we didn't just encounter the poor, but we encountered the diseased too. As we walked, we noticed a family asking for money, but this family was also carrying a baby. And as we walked by and looked at the baby, you remember mom? We saw one of the most haunting deformities a baby could have. It was this kind of sight that would make you sick to your stomach. And you see, again, as Americans, we weren't used to being confronted by this kind of poverty and this kind of disease. It shook us to the core. In fact, it ruined our night, to be honest. We went straight back to the hotel, and at least my mom and I, and if you know my mom, you know she's not afraid of anything. My mom and I determined never to walk the streets of Tijuana at night again. Now, I want to point something out. In our case, there wasn't overwhelming crowds threatening to crush us. We weren't being bombarded with sights like this day and night. Our experience was nothing compared to our Lord Jesus Christ. But the overwhelming amount of uncomfortable suffering we had to witness on that trip was enough to scare us away for good. Now, can you imagine 
the sights of the deformed, the groans of the diseased, and the wailing of the demonic Jesus encountered, fighting to touch him day in and night and willing to crush him just to touch him. Even though the crowds remained ignorant to Jesus' true mission, they did bring out of him this truth. Jesus is Lord of creation, and he no doubt came to restore everything that sin has perverted. He was either liar, lunatic, demonic, or Lord. They had to decide for themselves. But one thing was certain. While the Pharisees were trying to destroy him, broken humanity was running to him, falling at his feet, seeking desperately for relief. Verse, 9, verse 13. And he, Jesus, Mark, is on the go, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed 12. Here's our next people group. And he named them apostles so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have what? Exousia, or have authority to cast out yeah. demons. He appointed the 12. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boangers. I cannot pronounce that name, but I know a young man who had a band called Boangers. It means son of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Let's stop and look at what we've seen so far. We've seen the Pharisees. We've seen the crowds. And now we will introduce you to his followers. But interestingly, Mark's gospel does not contain much about the disciples. If you read Mark's gospel, you'll see the disciples in the background. And most of the time, here's the funny thing. When you see the disciples, they look pretty foolish. Now, why is that interesting? Well, I want you to remember, Mark, writing his gospel, is getting his information about the gospel from Peter, Jesus' disciple. So why does Peter make so little of himself? Why does Peter make so little of himself and so little of his disciples? You all know that to the victor, not only goes the spoils, but history. Whoever wins can write their own history. We have a problem in America today because we don't acknowledge our history. And to the victor goes the spoils but the right to write their own story. And of course, it's human nature to make yourself a hero and not a villain. Yet here Peter is telling Mark about their moments with Jesus. And Peter is making the disciples look foolish and lifting Jesus up. I love this. You want to know why he's doing this? I'm going to tell you why. Because both Peter and Mark have determined not to focus on the men, but to focus on Christ. True beauty can be found not in the men who are called, but in the Christ who is called the men. Now, what I'm about to say to you is not very popular. Put your seatbelts on, please. In a time in America where we have celebrity pastors, celebrity churches, in a time in America where celebrity pastors on our social media are the norm, we need more Christian leaders willing to embrace true humility. The glory is not ours. In fact, the higher we go in Christian leadership, if you want to be a leader at this church, please pay attention and take note. The higher we go in Christian leadership, the more you should disappear. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's why most of you don't even know all the names of the disciples. Well, you don't read your Bibles. But secondly, when you do, you don't pay attention. You can name maybe the top three, and then you'll start naming more and realizing they're not even disciples. Why? Because in Christian leadership, the greatest men are the men that go the lowest and disappear. Is anybody with me this morning? The more, the less men should be lifted up and the more glorious the name of Jesus Christ should be made known. Think about it. There's some apostles you don't even know about. Thomas speared in India. Peter crucified upside down because he's not worthy to be crucified right side up. Martyrs, men you'll never know about. Where did Philip go? Do you know? Where did Andrew go to take the gospel after the God? You don't know. These are men who disappeared and couldn't wait to die so they could be with their Savior. But can I say this? Their disappearance is why you and I are here today. Gosh, I need to get a revelation of this, not just the churches in America, pastors in America, but I need to get a revelation of this too. Now, there's two observations I want to make regarding the followers of Christ. I want to look at two things. Ready? Their qualification and their job description. Their qualification and their job description. Number one, notice the qualification of Jesus' followers. Are you ready? Jesus calls to himself those whom he desired. Did you catch that? What qualified this group of ragtag men to be Jesus' disciples was not their skills or their gifts. They weren't incredibly influential. They weren't master communicators. I'm sure their resumes weren't too stellar. I'm sure their LinkedIn accounts, amen, certainly did not blow anyone away. What qualified these men to be followers of Christ had nothing to do with them or their abilities and everything to do with Jesus. He called them because he desired them. Their qualifications are, ready, are found in Christ alone. I want you to know that your gifts, talents, and abilities are amazing, but they're not impressive. They're not impressive. You will not be the leader, the leader of the kingdom of God that God has called you to lead if you think that your gifts, your talents, and your abilities are more important than your understanding that none of those things qualify you. Only Christ. And I know it seems hard to believe, but oh, it feels so good. And it's so encouraging to know that Jesus does not call the qualified. He qualifies those he calls. And we've heard that before, but it's such a beautiful thing. Rest in that. He does not call the qualified, but he qualifies those whom he calls. Mark makes it clear. Jesus' followers have nothing to do with his choice. Jesus is Lord over the call. He's Lord over the selection. It is the choice of the master. Secondly, notice the job description of the followers. Jesus only gives them two tasks. Are you ready? He says, be with me and then go out and preach. Be with me and then go out and preach. Don't we always complicate things? But Jesus makes it so simple. Look. To be with him was to watch him, was to listen to him, to learn from him, and to be shaped by his words. To go and preach did not mean to stand on a pulpit and correctly explain the scriptures, to properly exegete the scriptures in front of hundreds of people watching at the church. It was simply a command to know the gospel and to share the gospel everywhere they went. Do you hear me? To be with him and to preach. And preaching does not mean you need to be up here educated in the Greek and the Hebrew. It means that you need to know the gospel because that's what saves you. And then you need to be able to share the gospel everywhere you go. 
The first preachers didn't have pulpits and people coming to them. The first preachers were sent out. And today, the most effective witness is not the pulpit. Come see, man, come see a man on a pulpit, the lights on him. The greatest and effective witness is going to be you saturating the Bay Area in your workplace, in your school place, in your play place, and in your home, in your neighborhood with the gospel of the kingdom of God. As followers of Christ, we must spend time with him, allowing his words to shape us into his image. But we must not stay hiding in his presence or hiding in his church. We must take what we have learned and how he has conformed us back to the world. This is the beautiful and simple balance of the Christian life. Are you ready? It's really simple. Everyone's always looking for keys. We write books, keys to this, keys to success, keys to your best life now. I know you want a book, and I think books are good, but can I just make this clear to you? Here's the simple balance of the Christian life, to come in and to learn from Jesus so that we can go out and look like Jesus. To come in and learn from Jesus so that we can go out and look like Jesus. So for those of you that don't believe going to church is good for you, I want, you to, I want to tell you right now, not a, I want you to tell you right now, if you put the gathering of the saints off to the side, then you are, dis, you are, what you are doing is you are disobeying a command to gather. Because when we gather, we mutually encourage. You learn the word. We gather during the week. And I'm not saying you're a sinner for missing and going on a vacation. What I am saying is how can you come in and be shaped by his word and molded by his word so that you can go out and look like him if you're not coming in? So can I tell you? If you're not coming in and going out, you're not a true disciple of Christ. What has been revealed to us in Christ, or what has been revealed to us is Christ's first steps towards building and establishing his church. And he, are you ready for this? He will not build it off the skills or excellent qualities of men, but he will build his church off of those whom he has called to himself, taught with his words, empowered with his spirits, and with his spirit, and sent into the world, not on their own mission to prevent, not on their own mission to promote their own branding on Instagram. but those willing to die to themselves so that the world may know Jesus. You know what the church needs? The church needs more leaders willing to disappear. He is either liar, lunatic, demonic, or Lord. They had to decide for themselves. Let's move on to verse 22. Mark, he's fast. He's fast. Watch out. He's fast. He's tricky. <laughs> All right. On to the next picture we go. It's like Mark explains something, drops a bomb, and then he's next. Let's go. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first, ready, binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. 
for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, immediately, I want you to notice this fourth group of people. Uh, they weren't just any scribes. Did you catch where they were from? They were scribes from Jerusalem. You see, these were the big wigs. Scribes from the holy city that housed the holy temple. You see, news of Jesus had traveled to the top of the religious food chain. And now they were sending out inspectors to confront this lunatic and expose him for the fraud that he was. But guess what? There was a problem. There was a problem. When they finally saw Jesus for themselves, his exousia, his superpower, supernatural authority was, ready for this, undeniable. You ever try to debunk a magician or you ever watch any shows that they you look at a magician, you think, man, that's crazy. And then you watch this show or this documentary, and they show you how they did it, and you're like, ah. No? I'm the only one? Amen. Well, this is what they were trying to do. They were trying to debunk Christ. But when they, the problem was when it came to him, they realized, man, this, this man's power is undeniable. So what would they do? What would be the official report given back to Jerusalem? And I believe if they wrote a report, it would say something like this. We, the official scribes sent from Jerusalem, have found that we can't deny his authority. His healings are verifiable, unlike some of the men today that promise healing, but they're not verifiable. I won't go there. We can't deny his authority. His healings are verifiable and his exorcisms are final. As far as we're concerned, Jesus Christ of Nazareth possesses supernatural power. Therefore, officials in Jerusalem, we've concluded Jesus is Lord, but he is Lord of the demons. This man must be possessed by Satan himself. Now, I want you to see this. Jesus deals with this claim in two ways, by logic and by parable. First, by logic. Simply put, Jesus says, how could a civil war benefit Satan? If a kingdom goes to war against itself and wins, that same kingdom suffers. If a family fights itself and wins, the family suffers. If Satan defeats Satan, Satan is done. In other words, they're so desperate to retain religious control and to explain away the divinity of Christ that now they've stooped so low as to be illogical. Sounds like some of the political debates we have today. Today, people don't want to come together for the good, they want to be right. And they will be illogical about it. Ready? On both sides of the aisles. So he clearly debunks their argument by logic. But then he continues to debunk it by parable. Now, I want you to get ready for this. Wherever the nerds are in this room, because you're like me, um, this is going to theologically blow your mind, I hope. Remember in verse 27 what Jesus said? He said, no one can enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds him up. Watch. Hidden in this brief parable is historical fact revealed to us in the gospel of Mark. Hidden in this parable, which is just a story, is actually a historical fact revealed to us through the gospel of Mark. What do I mean? Entering the strong man's house refers to Jesus' incarnation. You see, Jesus stepped down from heaven and stepped into earth, and he put on carne, his incarnation. He put on flesh, carne asada. <laughs> Jesus put on flesh, 
and he entered into our world. A world that happens to be the house of Satan. A world that is ruled by the kingdom of hell. So when Jesus says, first uh, you must enter a strong man's house, he's saying, I in my incarnation have entered into the house of Satan. Then he says, next you must what? Bind the strong man. So if entering his house means his incarnation, then binding the strong man refers to Jesus' temptation. Let me explain this to you. Remember in Mark chapter 1, verse 12 through 13, for 40 days, Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And in the wilderness, he was met by Satan where he was tempted. For 40 days, Satan bombarded Christ with an onslaught of temptations, yet Jesus never yielded once. Look, where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. What every human throughout history, including you and I, have not been able to accomplish, namely resist temptation, Jesus has accomplished by resisting every temptation thrown against him by Satan. You see, when Jesus is telling this parable, what he's saying is this. In my incarnation, I entered Satan's house. In my temptation, I proved to be the stronger man, and I bound Satan up. Therefore, I can take whatever I please and do with whatever I want in his kingdom. I want to invite the worship team to come up as we come to a conclusion. Every time in the Gospels you see Jesus healing diseases, casting out demons, raising the dead and forgiving sin, what you're seeing is spiritual warfare. Literally the kingdom of God's king coming into the kingdom of hell's world and plundering from him whatever he chooses. Listen, refusing to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, the scribes from Jerusalem blasphemed the Holy Spirit and called Christ a devil. He is either liar, lunatic, demonic, or Lord. They had to decide for themselves. Now let me conclude with our final group we're going to read, I'm going to say a couple of things, and I'm going to pray over you and dismiss. Turn to Mark 3. I'm going to read 20 through 21. I skipped that. And then I'm going to read 31 through 35, and we're just going to flow. Verse 20 says this. Then he, again Jesus, went home, and the crowds gathered again. There they are. So that they could not even eat. Can you believe this? Like they're crushing him. He's not eating. And when his family heard it, remember this final group is Jesus' relatives. They went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Jesus, let's go get him. That boy's crazy. You guys have family members. Some of y'all, your family went and got you. Right? I was going to say some of you guys went and got your family, but most of you here are the crazies. Your family went and got you. They said, this boy crazy. Let's go save him from himself. Now skip down to verse 31. And his mother, this is Jesus' mother Mary, and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Unlike the religious leaders, I want you to know that Jesus' relatives were lovingly concerned. 
You see, all they knew was that their son and brother was in danger. He doesn't eat often. He's always surrounded by crazy crowds that are literally threatening to crush his body. I mean, if you were a mama, wouldn't you want to save your son from that? Not to mention rumors of his murder were starting to surface. So his brothers and his mother looked at each other and said, if he doesn't stop, he's going to get killed. He's out of his mind. We must do this for him because he can't do it for himself. And so they searched for him to seize him. You see that word seize? I mean, I almost think of somebody binding him up and saying, get out of here. We're going to save you from yourself, Jesus. You don't know what you're doing. People are crushing you. The Pharisees are plotting against you. See, to them, no man in the right mind would subject himself to all of this unless he was crazy. But this small story gives room to a very wonderful revelation. I want you to hear this. By God's grace, Jesus has come to raise an entirely new family. This family will not be connected by any human commonalities. Are you listening? He's not raising up a people who are connected by same interests. I know some of you say, well, I just really can't connect at that church because people aren't interested in what I'm interested. I need to find someone who has something in common with me. I want you to know Jesus came to raise up a different kind of family where people who don't have same interests because of the blood of Christ would come together. So there goes that excuse. You see, he's not raising up people who are connected by same interests or same socioeconomic status. Well, you know, that person just doesn't make as much as I do. That person can't afford to go to the same places I go to. I just can't hang out with them. I need to find people that more look like me and spend like me. Jesus didn't come to raise up a family that would come together because they both make the same amount of money and work in the same careers. How about this? Jesus is not interested in creating a tribe that votes the same. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord, because I know some of y'all think all Democrats are going to hell. And some of y'all think all, Democrat, or all Republicans are going to hell. I'm going to say, you know what? You keep living and listening to that lie, you're going to hell. I know it. I see your Facebooks. Allow me to chastise a little bit. I, I know God is going to chastise me. I should be a little more graceful. I love y'all. And I vote. I do. I'm not telling you to not vote. And there are concerns that I have genuinely. But I want you to tell you something. When Jesus said, I come to create a family, it wasn't based off what you have mutual interest in. It's not based on how much money you guys made. It's not even based on how you voted last November. I know that's hard to swallow, but it's true. Nor is this family, are you ready? Based on blood. You know, they say, was it blood is thicker than water? This spirit might be thicker than blood. If you think about it, you're going to spend eternity with people that are bound together by faith in Christ. Some of us, our own family members may not be there with us. Which means you're more family with the body of Christ than you are with some that are close to you, which should propel you to evangelize. Because I would hate to spend eternity without some people that love me. You see, all those things are not bad things. Uh, you know, I'm being a little, a little hyperbole in me. All these things aren't terrible things. Some of these things are beautiful things. Please gather together with mutual interests. Sometimes I go to dinner with somebody and we don't have the same interests and it's like talking to a wall. I get it. It's awkward. We avoid that. I get that. So let me retract. You see what's happening here? I'm like a parent that just beat their kid and they come back and like, I'm so sorry. Right. I, I want to retract here, and I, I'm okay. It's okay. Go to the game with the guys that go to the game. But at some point, the commonality of Christ and the family that is building transcends those things. And they shouldn't become excuses to click. You see, all those things are good, but they can be used as a tool by the devil to create division or to turn you away from the church. What God is doing through Christ is bigger 
than human commonality. It's even impossible for us to accomplish in our own strength. You see, you ready for this? God is achieving unity and diversity. Building a family by our common need of a savior to deliver us from our sins and from death. You see that? God is building a family by our common need for a savior to deliver us from our common weakness of sin and our common enemy of Satan and death. As I finish, listen to the responses of all five people groups in chapter 3 one last time. The Pharisees wanted him dead. The scribes from Jerusalem reported that he was demon-possessed. The crowds crushed him, wanting to touch him at all costs. His own relatives, although concerned, diagnosed him with a mental disorder. But his followers simply sat, his, sat at his feet and listened and obeyed. He is either liar, lunatic, demonic, or Lord. They had to decide for themselves, and you have to decide too. As we go through the book of Mark, you are going to be exposed to the same person and work of Jesus Christ that all five of these people groups were exposed to. And each and every one of you will personally have to decide who he is to you. Who is he? Does he deserve your life? Is he Lord? Then make him Lord over everything. Otherwise, he's Lord over nothing. Is he a weekend event? Then continue to go church every once in a while on a Sunday. But if he's Lord, then he deserves your obedience. And your obedience is really simple. It's two things. Ready? Jesus says, come be with me. And then go out and look like me. Come be with me. And go out and look like me. And along the way, you might be a little messed up. We all are. I still got some struggles. We're going to continue to sin. This flesh is just disgusting. It just wants to appease itself. But I want you to know through the power of the Holy Spirit, by your faith in Jesus Christ, yeah. sanctification begins to take place. We begin to walk like, we begin to walk with Jesus. We begin to learn and read his word. We begin to allow the Holy Spirit to marinate it inside of us. We become transformed by the renewing of our mind. And some point, the things that used to trip us, and at some point, the things that used to fall in, all of a sudden, it gets in our rearview mirror. At some point, the thing that used to destroy you, the thing that used to overtake you, the sin that so easily ensnared you, all of a sudden, it gets further and further away, and you continue to walk with Jesus, and you continue to look like Jesus. Be patient. It's not going to happen overnight. I know some of you are a little impatient. You want a microwave? You want it to happen right now? And the big question is, well, how do I, how do I become saved? Right? Every week, how do I become saved? How do I, I just tell me, how do I become saved? And I... I'm going to tell you the how, but even when I tell you the how, I want you to know don't get caught up in a formula, because if it's just a formula, then he's not Lord. And it's simply this, throughout scripture, repent and believe the gospel. What's repentance? Repentance is a turning away from your sin and a turning towards God, turning towards Christ, turning away from the areas, the sinful areas in your life that grieve God. And turning towards Christ. But it's, it's not just repentance. Because if it was just to stop at repentance, what a sad thing. But we, we turn towards God. And that's a beautiful thing. But then we believe in. We put our belief in his gospel. And what is the gospel? That's the big question. We preach the gospel all the time. But I know that somebody still, I don't know what the gospel is. The gospel is simple. The gospel says, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Any, everything inside of me. My default sin nature. I'm a sinner. I'm a failure, and I deserve the wrath of God. But the gospel is good news, so it doesn't stop there, because that's bad news. God's wrath is coming. But the good news is, but I believe that God made provision. And what I couldn't secure for myself, what I can't earn for myself, Jesus, the Son of God, secured for me. And he walked this world, this world sinless. And he walked this world perfect. And then he went on the cross and took the wrath of God. And he did it for us. And now if we repent and believe the gospel, 
His righteousness becomes ours. His perfection becomes ours. His Spirit is poured into us and we're empowered so that when the Father looks down, He doesn't look at us with wrath, but now He looks at us with favor because He sees the glorious life of His Son in us. Therefore, we don't need anything more. Why do we need more? More money. Well, if I just had this much, I'd serve you, Lord. Or if I just this happened, I'd serve you. I get that, but we are all sufficient in Christ. He is the all-sufficient one. So, Heavenly Father, Lord, this isn't a moment. This is a lifetime. So I pray for everyone in this room under the sound of my voice who hear your word, I pray that they would internalize and understand the gospel. It would never get old to them. May the gospel not be the entry level into our Christianity, but may it be the depths of our Christianity. May we never leave the gospel. May we always preach it to ourselves because we forever need to be reminded of the gospel. And most importantly, may we put you in front. You are, at least to me, you're not a lunatic. You're not demonized. You're not a good man, a good teacher with some moral things for us to learn from. You are more than you are the son of God. That's the verdict the father demands from all of humanity. Who will you say he is? Is he a liar? Is he lunatic? Is he a demon? Or is he, or is he Lord? And if he's Lord, then he deserves it all. So father, as hard as it is to hear sometimes, I pray that everyone would leave in here with burdens lifted. Please don't be burdened. All we have to do is repent and believe the gospel. We don't have to act. We don't have to perform. We don't have to behave a certain way. All we have to do is repent and believe the gospel. So today we do that corporately and individually. May your will be done in this church. May your will be done in the Bay Area. May a movement of disciple-making, gospel-centered churches rise up in the Bay for your honor and for your glory. Raise up more pastors willing to disappear more leaders willing to disappear so that you would get the glory so that Jesus would be known and made famous Lord we love you in Jesus name amen amen and amen come back enjoy the connects this week find a connect connect talk about the word next Sunday we'll finish this series off the series within the series God bless you we love you